The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. I remember some men started praying and others started crying. Um, Part way through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I scratched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm -hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. (laughs) Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. I'm standing on the former airfield of Wigram in Christchurch. I'm looking out at what's left of the airfield. There's a still a big patch of green, but then beyond that, there's a lot of houses that never used to be here. Uh, the place has changed a lot since I was based here back in the 1990s, um, when it was the Royal New Zealand Air Force's main training base for flying training and for a significant amount of the ground training as well. And it always had been a training base right back to World War I. Uh, I'm in front of the museum, the Air Force Museum of New Zealand, and uh, I'm here today to meet with uh, various members of the staff of the Air Force Museum of New Zealand to record a very special show with them. Uh, this is a very special place for me. Um, I first visited here in 1989. Uh, the place opened in 1987. Uh, I first heard about it in 1987, just after it opened an article came out in North and South magazine and I, I re read and reread that article over and over. I just absolutely love the idea of this Air Force Museum. And I finally got here in 1989 when I was in the Air Force. Um, absolutely love the place and when I, when I got posted to the base in 1991 I started coming here regularly. Almost every weekend I'd pop in and I got to know the staff. It's a wonderful place, and every time I come to Christchurch, I, I visit again. And now it's a different landscape again. There's, it's uh, this is the first time I've been here since they've extended the place. There's whole new extra buildings, so I'm really looking forward to going in and just having a, a look around and seeing the new new buildings, new facilities, and catching up with some of the people. And yeah, it's going to be great. Well, I'm in the atrium of the museum, and I'm here with Michelle Sim. Hi, Michelle. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Now, um, you are the communications officer, correct? I am, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so my role, um, as the name suggests, and involves uh, coordinating all communications uh, for the museum. So mostly um, I spend a lot of time uh, coordinating our social media presence and online content. So I'm the, the lady behind the Facebook posts and the, the Twitter feeds and the, the Instagram posts and YouTube videos and all the rest of it, which is pretty much a full-time job in itself, but unfortunately I don't have the luxury of that. So I've divided my time um, between that um, and uh, dealing with media, um, yep. putting together press releases, um, helping out our exhibitions team. I do a lot of uh, editing and proofreading and also some writing. Um, we're generating a lot of content now, ever-increasing sort of amounts of content in various uh, forms yep. for the public. So it's a huge amount of work um, that, that's done by a very small group of people. So, yeah, I certainly help out with that. Uh, with the recent departure of our business manager, I'm also taking on um, a little bit of marketing as well because, okay. effectively, when it comes down to it, marketing is communication. Yes. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'm starting to look after that. Um I'm also managing our, um, our website, um, which is undergoing a major revamp at the moment. Um, so we've got a whole new website under construction right now, which is really exciting. Um, the new one is going to be absolutely fantastic, and it's going to include a whole lot more features and enable us to get our, you know, tell our stories a lot more effectively. So it's quite exciting. That's really neat. Um, I, I like the website you've got now, but I can see that uh, there, 
you know, there's so much potential to tell the public about what you guys do and, and yeah. what the Air Force does as well. Absolutely. And um, uh, just the amount of stuff that you've put out in the last, I don't know, two years or whatever that you've been doing the Facebook page. How long 12, 12 months, just oh, over 12 really? months. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the amount of stuff that you've put out through that has been absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah. Almost every day there's a new story, well, yeah. probably every day. Every yeah, day there's a new yeah. story, and all of it's great. Yeah, well, that's what we're aiming for. I mean, it helps that I personally have a, a genuine passion for the subject. Yeah. Um, my background is curatorial, so I spent uh, my first uh, six, six to seven years here at the museum working in the research team and with the archives, so I've got a, a lot of familiarity with uh, the subject matter and our... Um, and the, you know, our collection and, and the stories that we have hidden away, which, you know, when I worked in the research team, I was, you know, and I was handling this material and, and you know, uncovering all these amazing stories, and I, I really wanted to be able to have the freedom to, to tell those stories and to share them, but at that stage we didn't have capacity for a communications role, so... Um, I, uh, I went away and did a, had a stint of maternity leave and came back and our director had, um, had done a bit of reshuffling and, and um, found that there, um, you know, uh, that there was space for, for another position. So, yeah, I kind of just moved into that when I came back from maternity leave and it's just been incredible. Um, yeah, and very rewarding. Um, just, you know, seeing, watching our online uh, following grow and, yeah. and the engagement that's happening. Um, yeah, that's great. what we're really trying to work on is just, you know, we do a lot for our physical visitors, but we know that that's only a small, very small percentage of, you know, of our, our global audience, if you like. And, exactly. and, and that's part of our, you know, one of our strategic goals is to reach out to, to that global audience and, and share the, the story um, of the RNZAF and, and New Zealand military aviation to, you know, an ever-expanding um, audience more effectively. Yeah. So, yeah. And another thing that I've noticed on uh, on your pa- on your um, Facebook pages, uh, much like with the forum, you'll often pull a photo out of the archive that you guys don't know all the details to, and put it up there and say, "Now watch this," and the answers will come out of the woodwork yeah. from people who are there. Oh, that's just been absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, as a museum, we're quite frank about the fact that we don't have all the answers. Yeah. You know, um, we we do have a lot of you know, very knowledgeable uh, subject experts, but again, we don't know everything. And um, so we're very open to to putting stuff out there and, and inviting, you know, people to, to share their memories and, and stories and, and, you know, any information they have about things because, you know, it's a win-win really. They get to share their stories and we get to enhance the records that we've got and, and add to, to that. So, yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic just seeing that happening. Absolutely. And let's hope it keeps on continuing. Because, Absolutely. Uh, uh, and you know, I'm always happy to uh, share your posts w- with the Wings of New Zealand Facebook page, and and uh, you know any of your queries onto the onto the forum, and um, support you in that way as well. Yeah, so. no, that's brilliant. Thank you. No worries. Um, so, we're, as I say, we're standing here in the atrium. Uh, I haven't been to this museum for uh, at least five years, and a lot has changed in that time. And I look around, and some of it's very familiar from. From, from forever with the, the the vampire and the tiger moth and the Blerio replica above us and the wonderful stained glass windows and the memorial uh, uh, wall but there's some differences, some major differences uh, in this place um, the cafe has shifted for a start and you can go through from beyond the cafe into the, into the new uh, hangar um, what a big difference Oh, it is. It's just fantastic. Um, it's probably the biggest thing that's happened, um, certainly in the 
eight, eight years that I've been here was the construction of our new building. Yeah. Uh, that was completed in February 2013. Um, that was a major fundraising effort by you know our director and trust board um, to raise the money for that, which wasn't easy in the wake of... Um, you know, uh, earthquakes and, and the global you know financial crisis as well. But you know, testament to their efforts, uh, we managed it, and it's been such a great asset. So, um, it's more than doubled our display uh, space, current display space, or it will more than double our display space. At the moment, um, it we had to to make a, a small compromise, which you know, in the grand scheme of things, is is not a, a big ask really. And that is because of the extraordinary nature of post. Christchurch and we lost you know the city lost its convention centre and there's a real shortage of uh, large capacity venues um, so our trust board came to an agreement uh, with the Christchurch City Council that we would um, devote uh, two-thirds of that space to conferences and events for the city which you know otherwise we may have lost from Christchurch so that's money that's yeah. coming into into the city um, and you know and and also to us you know it's been it's been great for us in the respect that you know, that, that's an unanticipated source of income that can go back into supporting our core mission of preserving our aircraft and, and wider collection and um, supporting our, our free admission policy and free education programs and all, all that sort of thing that we have to work really hard to, to maintain. Um, so that is going to continue until, um, until such times as there is a new convention centre um, built in the city, which at this stage, it's still a little up in the air, but it's likely to be the second half of 2019. Okay. Um, and at that point, we can then uh, take full um, occupation of the space, and it'll be become a, an amazing, you know, brand new uh, display hall, and it's it's going to be wonderful. So all the aircraft that are currently in our reserve collection, um, aircraft and vehicles, and other large objects, will finally come out on display. So we're working, you know, towards that at the moment. So yeah, certainly our new building has been um, has been a, a massive um, massive asset for us. Um, just some other changes you can see here in the atrium. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had um, our floor completely redone, which yeah, seems quite, um, you know, minor in the grand scheme of things, but it actually made a huge difference. So we, where we did have old painted concrete, which had cracked and looked dreadful, we've got lovely um, polished tile floor now, which just raises the bar a little. We also have a new staircase to take visitors up to the next level, um, which makes it a bit, bit easier to access those upper galleries. Um, and yes, of course, the, the cafe has moved. We have a new front desk. Just little things that, you know, over time have really, um, really raised the bar at the museum and, and just, yeah, as I say, taken us to that next level. And also above us here on the next um, level, the mezzanine area, uh, you've got the Morrison Room now, which um, on Sunday we're going to be using that for our forum meet. Um, That's right. That, that, was, that was a display space before, but now it's an actual... Uh, uh, a place for having events and, and that's it is it is that was um, some people may recall our wartime family home which was a hugely popular um, exhibition and you know a lot of people were quite sad uh, to see that go um, but there were a number of reasons for that it was time to to retire it and maybe think about something new in there um, it had served its purpose for for that time but also with the you know the temporary sort of emphasis on supporting conferences and events we needed that space as a as a breakout space for such large events um, to use so yeah it's great you you know the um, the forum will be able to, to occupy that on Sunday and make use of that which is good really looking forward to it mm. um, shall we wander through to the the galleries mm. yep sounds good Actually, one thing, uh, just as we pass here, you've got life-size uh, 
photographic cutouts of famous people from the Air Force. So what, yeah. a, what a great idea that is. Oh, this is, this is fantastic. So we've got about half a dozen, uh, as you say, Dave, life-size freestanding figures on display at the moment. Now, this is the beginnings of quite an ambitious project that we're undertaking. Uh, the aim is to... Um, to chart the RNZAF's history uh, or to tell, you know, 80 years and, and 80 stories. Yep. Um, and that is intended to be complete in time for the RNZAF's 80th anniversary. So by the time um, that we, we head up to uh, the 80th anniversary tattoo at Ohakia in February next year, we should have 80, well, we will have 80 of these um, cutout figures, uh, which will create a, a virtual crowd. Uh, which people can wander through and just discover um, as they go those uh, the stories and the people that have helped shape you know New Zealand's military aviation journey, which is is really exciting. We're hoping it'll it'll be it's quite a creative approach, and we're yeah. hoping it'll make quite a, an impact. It so is. yeah, we've just put them in here just as a bit of a um, a sneak preview and just to see how visitors uh, react to them. But so far, yeah, the reactions have been really really favourable. Brilliant, brilliant. I'll have to look out a photo of myself. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing you may have noticed too, just over on the roll of honour, um, uh, so this is our, um, obviously where the names of, of all those who've lost their lives in um, the service of uh, the RNZF and, and Allied Air Forces uh, is recorded. Um, when that was first installed, it was roped off, it was, you know, uh, certainly nobody could, could touch it, it was, you know, regarded as, as quite sacred, but over time we've, we've realised that people actually do it holds a lot of meaning and, and people get quite emotional when they, you know, find a name of their loved ones. So now we're quite open to, we've taken the ropes away and we're quite open to people leaving poppies and other sort of, you know, notes and offerings and really engaging with that um, in a way that's kind of, yeah, has meaning for them. That's, that's fantastic. Um, I was having a look at it earlier when I was, just after I'd had my lunch and um, found the two names of the two boys that were on my recruit course, you know. Wow, yeah. Um, yeah. So we're entering the Horizon to Horizon uh, galleries, the flight path of our Air Force. Yeah, so this gallery, um, the purpose of this gallery is really to, um, to tell the story of um, the evolution of military aviation in New Zealand. Um, people may recall uh, the, the old display gallery um, that occupied the space. Um, which, you know, that was installed in 1987 when the museum was first opened and it remained virtually unchanged uh, through until 2008, um, by which time it, it, was, it needed a refresh, it needed a, you know, fresh perspective um, and some, some new artefacts and new stories and, and just a whole new um, philosophy of, um, of visitor engagement. So the approach we've taken in this gallery is to place a real emphasis on personal stories to, to tell that wider story because you know we recognize that that's what people will connect with and what makes makes it so much more meaningful to them so um, we have a central timeline which forms the, the sort of the main spine of, of the gallery yep. so that provides the background context you know to, to the history of the RNZAF and then uh, flanking that on one side uh, are the, the personal stories so um, which correspond you know roughly to the timeline so we start with the earliest days you know, of, of aviation um, or New Zealand's involvement in military aviation with World War One, yep. and goes all the way through virtually to the present. Um, and then on the other side, we have some uh, uh, vertical, clear-sided uh, display cases where we feature some more of our larger 
artifacts, yep. uh, yeah, which tell different aspects of the story as well. So we have, you know, a case for the war in the Pacific and, you know, the um, Empire Training Scheme in Canada. Yep. And uh, also we've got a couple of cases to re- uh, acknowledge and recognise our enemy forces yep. as well. Um, so, yeah, collectively it, it, it tells that story. We also have... Um, <laughs> Those of you who you know are familiar with the museum from way back will recall um, our dioramas were very popular and we didn't want to lose those completely from the new gallery. Yep. So we've retained a couple of really popular ones, including if we um, just walk around sure. here. Uh, the fighter command diorama with the two pilots and the dog. Oh, yes. Which yeah, is yeah. quite evocative of, um, you know, of, of the nature of that particular story and as well as um, our sort of boy in the bomber display where we have um, a, a um, gunner in a Wellington um, a turret, yep. bomber's turret um, and our bomber command diorama as well around the corner with the, the two um, air crew oh, yeah, sharing li- a, lighting, lighting the, the cigarette. cigarette yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, actually I remember when the boy in the bomber uh, display first was put in here and they said this is a six month temporary display and it was obviously so popular it's still here because it was there was the early 1990s wow yeah um, yeah no the dioramas are very popular for yeah. people and you know museum visitors these days they like to feel immersed in the story which is why we've incorporated elements um, such as our you know our replica Nissan hut yep. over here uh, where there's a historic um, film uh, bomber command film playing in there um, and uh, further through in the gallery we also have a, a scale replica uh, C-130 Hercules interior, right. which um, kids love strapping themselves into the webbing seats and, and all the rest of it in there. So, and they were all constructed here on site using the, um, you know, the expertise uh, that our, our talented uh, guys in the, the hangar possess. Yep. Um, so yeah, we're very, very proud of that. Brilliant. And, and in these um, vertical cases that you mentioned, there's items that kind of give a, a general history that most people who were there would remember but then there's also um, you know uh, uh, there's personal histories attached to some of these things as well and yeah. uh, they, they tell a they tell an interesting story yeah they certainly do and you know there's there's some items that are you know are quite evocative um, we have a, um, a chaplain's um, a portable um, sermon set from a, a prisoner of war camp. Yep. So it's, you know, um, yeah, portable altar, yeah, used by the Reverend John Walton at um, Stalaglyph Three. So it's a leather case containing all the items um, he needed to perform um, the Eucharist ceremony. Yep. Um, so he's got a little altar and vestments and a chalice and, you know, um, and all the rest of it in a wee Bible. And, you know, that in itself is, is a is a really evocative um, sort of piece because you. You know, you just stop and think about the circumstances that that was being, you know, that very thing in front of your eyes was, was being used yes, in, and, yeah, um, yeah it, it carries a lot of meaning. And then above it, there's uh, something that every prisoner looked forward to and it kept them alive was the Red Cross parcels. I mean, Absolutely. you know, everyone around the world, uh, uh, families were contributing to, um, to the Red Cross who were making these parcels up, and, you know, they were even getting them from South America, to all across New Zealand, Australia, Britain, and they're going to these prisoners, and that was really what was keeping them alive. It sure was, yeah. The, um, the POW story is one that is well represented in our collection, um, especially the, the European POW story. Yeah. And uh, in recognition of that, we um, a couple of years ago, we uh, opened a, a new 
permanent exhibition um, called Captured, um, and that was all about the ex experiences of um, um, Kiwi airmen who were prisoners of war in Europe. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's been, been very popular to tell that story. Of course, acknowledging the fact that uh, the experiences of those prisoners of war in the Far East um, was somewhat different, and um, we do intend to, certainly intend to tell that story, but it needs its own separate treatment. So, yeah, yeah we're working towards that. Cool. Just on the far wall too of this gallery, um, this is what we we refer to in-house as our ripping yarns. Um, okay. So we have sort of generic personal stories um, on one side and on the, on the other wall uh, are our sort of um, exceptional stories. So these are stories of, of people who've done, you know, exceptionally brave things or, um, yeah. Extraordinary. Extraordinary things, yeah. yeah. So um, we did have the three VC winners um, on, on display there, um, but they've just recently been uh, rested, um, so it's not the fact that we're ignoring their story, but yeah, um, yeah these things um, sometimes need to, you know, the artefacts that we have relating to them just need to be rested for their, you know, conservation um, uh, interests, so particularly uh, when it comes to log books and, and paper and textiles, um, you know, they're very... Um, uh, very susceptible to, to light damage right. and things like that so we don't yeah there is a limit to to the length of time we can keep them on display plus it's also good to rotate the uh, displays for people Definitely. who come back regularly isn't it yep, so absolutely. there's something new to see yep. so I mean one of them I can see here uh, is John Clayton and I, I know that he joined up long before the war uh, as, a, as a mechanic and then uh, later became a pilot and flew corsairs but his um, his really extraordinary thing was becoming one of the Antarctic pilots in the 1950s, yes. um, flying the yeah. Beaver and Oster down at uh, uh, the Antarctica, and uh, extraordinary man. Absolutely, and we are very fortunate to have had his um, collection donated um, to us uh, following his, you know, his um, after he passed away, um, and amongst his collection uh, is the. The RNZF Ensign that um, they flew at the South Pole, which right. is on display upstairs right. at the moment. Um, yeah, so again, another you know collection item with just a really significant story attached, and that's what brings these these objects to life. You know, a lot of uh, historical artifacts, you know, they're they're interesting in their own right, but it's those those personal stories that really bring them to life, and that's our challenge is to to ensure those stories are told. Yeah, can you give us a, a brief run through of the others who are on the wall? Uh, so that is Warner, William Warner. Um, gosh, you put me on the spot. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I didn't curate this particular part. That's right. um, I did do the proofreading, <laughs> however. Um, yeah, so he was a um, he was a pilot during the First World War with the um, Royal Flying Corps and RAF. And uh, during the interwar period, he continued serving with the RAF, and he was stationed in the Middle East in Iraq. And uh, he, um, his wife actually was on an aircraft that went missing over the desert and um, he, um, he was one of the pilots who, um, who went out to, to try, and find, um, try and find the aircraft. So it was a bit of an early search and rescue operation oh, right. but a lot more meaningful for him because his wife was on board. Right. Fortunately it did have a happy ending, um, the aircraft had run out of fuel um, and uh, he found them um, being looked after by some friendly uh, Bedouin. Um, right. So yeah, luckily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, then we've got Kenneth yeah, Tate. Yeah, Kenneth Tate. This is a uh, slightly more poignant one. Um, incidentally, Kenneth Tate uh, is actually the brother of 
one of our long-standing uh, guides who recently passed away, uh, Ron Tate, who also served um, in the RNZAF as a pilot during the war. Um, Tate was a, um, a fighter pilot. Yes, he served during the Battle of Britain. Yeah, it was six confirmed victories and was awarded the D- Distinguished Flying Cross. But sadly, he um, he disappeared over the North Sea in 1941 and, uh, yeah, his remains were never found, so his disappearance is quite a mystery. Um, and this next one, this is uh, Trevor Hunter, oh, right. um, or Trevor Colway, uh, Nate yep. Hunter. And of course, uh, for those, um, those who will be familiar with the Air Transport Auxiliary, uh, she was an um, ATA pilot, New Zealand um, uh, ATA pilot. So she, she left her job as a, as a ballet teacher before the war to, um, to join the ATA and, um, and help uh, ferry military aircraft around the UK. Um, and she racked up an incredible number of hours um, over the war, um, period of the war, and uh, by the end she was authorised to fly 42 different types of aircraft, so an incredible lady. Wow. But apparently the, um, her greatest love was always the Spitfire, so <laughs> was her favourite. Can understand that. So we have her ATA um, uh, field service cap and her ferry pilot notes um, on display here. Oh, that's great. This is a great story. This... Um, <laughs> This next one is a story of George the Pigeon. So this isn't a human story, but we like to acknowledge that it, um, you know animals also play a part in war um, and indeed in, in peacetime too. So uh, George um, was a messenger pigeon who uh, belonged to the um, to the crew of Flight Lieutenant Norman Crompton, um, who uh, was a, um, a bomber pilot on. Um, uh, with Martin Baltimore's um, of um, in Libya. Um, in 1943, now his um, aircraft went down um, in the Mediterranean, and um, when things looked a bit bleak, um, the crew attached a message to, to George's legs and um, sent him off. Uh, apparently, the, the first attempt was aborted because George just plopped straight back down into the sea <laughs> and had to be rescued. So they they grabbed him back and they um, dried him off um, and uh, tried again. That time he made it and um, made it back to the RAF Pigeon Loft over 160 kilometres away um, with a message and so the Royal Navy were dispatched to rescue the crew and um, it was the first time in World War II that a pigeon had saved the lives of of RAF airmen so yeah RAF airmen in the Mediterranean Sea I should say. Very cool story. That that is and it's something that not not a lot of people realise but they did carry pigeons on the bombers um, regularly didn't they? They did yeah. uh, didn't, Didn't have to use them most of the time thankfully but that's right. Uh, what an extraordinary thing to, to have on board. You've got all these radios and everything for con- contact, but that's your last resort, really, know, isn't it? Release the pigeon. Incredible. And on display here, we have a, um, a, a pigeon message, uh, example of a pigeon message form. Yep. Um, so, yeah, just uh, the form that was used to um, attach to the leg of, of a pigeon. So. Wow. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, this, uh, this next story is, um, is quite incredible. This is Edward Hitchcock. Um, he uh, was, let me get this right again, I don't want to get it wrong, I believe he was the only New Zealander to um, go ashore on, um, at Normandy um, on D-Day. He was attached to an RAF radar unit. With the, um, yeah, So he was part of an RAF radar unit attached to the American forces. So um, he was on a landing craft floating... Um, 
off the coast when the Americans stormed Omaha Beach as day broke. Um, so he was sitting there watching all that unfold and then his unit um, landed later in the day. Um, we have his diary, which, oh sorry, letter to his parents, which is actually quite detailed and um, you know, quite grim in places. He talks about the trouble we had getting through the water with all the dead bodies floating past and um, yeah, his landing craft um, stalled um, as it tried to um, to beach and they had to you know jump into the water and and try and get ashore but he went uh, all the way through through Europe with the libera- liberating forces um, right through into Germany where yeah he saw the, the end of the war on 8th of May so quite incredible yeah that's brilliant I've actually been told that there were actually six RNZF members in the RF um, radar units oh we're there oh well, there you go <laughs> uh, yeah I, I, I can't confirm it, but I've been yeah. told that by a chap who actually uh, interviewed one of right. them. So, right, right. Yeah. Which is which is interesting, but uh, you know yeah. you don't even think of New Zealanders storming the beaches in no. Normandy, and you wouldn't expect it to be the Air Force. No, exactly. So that's a, it yeah. is a really neat story. Yeah. We've talked about John. So the last one here, Glenda, uh, Glenda Perry. So this is um, obviously it's it's a lot easier for us to tell stories of the more distant past because you know our collection is very heavy um, on particularly World War II uh, content. Um, however, you know, we we recognise that our story doesn't stop there, um, far from it. You know, um, we, you know, we um, want to be able to tell the stories of the more recent past and, and indeed, you know, the con- contemporary Air Force as well. Um, so this story uh, regards um, a lady who, um, an airwoman who uh, served in East Timor um, and we have her diary, which um, describes um, she describes how um, you know 200 Timorese were massacred at, at Suai Cathedral, um, pro-Indonesian militia, and um, yeah, um, I guess just highlighting the 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 realities of, of what our you know um, what our air forces you know had to face the more recent past yeah. and, and sort of more emphasis on the impact on civilians um, oh, and that's right there's a lot of people out there that don't really hear much about what our air force does these days no. but they're, they're doing uh, really dangerous and grim tasks sometimes and yeah, they um, really are. yeah and, and it's good to see that that's acknowledged here as well yeah yeah so we we are putting a real effort in at the moment to um you know one of our younger visitors here, <laughs> um, you know, to ensure that we do, um, you know, we are telling the story of of the Air Force today and what they do today because, you know, um, a lot of people don't really understand um, what the Air Force is about. Um, you know, there's, there's a misconception that the Air Force ended with the, you know, the... Um, um, the disbandment of the air combat force, which is far from far from the truth. You know, there's a lot of men and women doing incredible stuff and serving very proudly. So, you know, we we definitely um, believe very strongly in telling their story, just as much as those who served during World War Two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent agree with that. <laughs> so, um, just around here, uh, you might um, we'll discover one of our most popular artifacts. Uh, this ah. is. This is Henry Fanshawe. Um, Fanshawe was the um, the mascot of Number Seventy Five Squadron. So Fanshawe is a a large um, teddy bear uh, who looks as though he's seen better days. <laughs> um, he's a very well loved teddy bear. Um, he um, 
he has some incredible stories to tell as well. We actually have his official file, personnel file, in the archives, which is a real, a real scream because you know there's all the official forms that are being filled out in tongue-in-cheek fashion, and yeah. um, we've also got. Um, postcards from Fanshawe that he's written to his squadron mates, you know, when he's been, um, you know, he's, he's gone on holiday with another squadron or he's been pinched by another unit and yeah. taken overseas. We've also got ransom notes, um, you know, help me, I've been kidnapped, um, send beer, that sort of thing, um, and loads of photographs of him. Um, so he, he's just got so many, you know, wonderful stories to tell. Um, so somewhere along the line, somebody, um, there was a, a lady, I can't recall her name, um, but she actually made a miniature uniform for him. So he's wearing a little uh, G-suit and a flying jacket and he's got, um, he's got a, um, his uh, pilot's wings is, you know, almost, I think it's Kiwi Red even, yeah. not sure, but, um, yeah. name badge, uh, he's got all his medal ribbons, um, medals, he's got the, the Douglas A4 Skyhawk patch yeah. and he's got his rank. Um, yeah, he, he had a really, really interesting um, interesting life with uh, 75 squadrons. And, so. and I know that he also did a tour on 40 squadron in the Gulf War. Yes, as well. he did, he's you're a, right. He's a veteran, he's he a did, yeah. yeah, and he was taken to East Timor as well by 3 right. squadron, I think. Right. So, yeah, he's definitely been around, and, you know, as you can tell, he's looking very threadbare. He's lost an eye, so he's got an eye patch over one eye, <laughs> and uh, a very well loved uh, little guy. So, um, yeah, again, we really want to. Um, we put a lot of work into um, looking at how we tell his story and use him to um, as a as a means of connecting with people, especially children, um, to you know to tell the the stories of um, of the Air Force over that period. The, um, the stories that are that are more suitable for children because there's some that are a bit questionable yeah. if you look at the seventy five squadron unofficial histories. Yeah, raise a few eyebrows, but no, he's. He's a, um, he's a great artefact, and um, yeah, we're very, very proud to have him in retirement here at the museum. It, it really is um, one of the great stories of, of Air Force mascots, but there were other mascots as well, and it's something that, um, through history really, there's been uh, the mascots and good luck charms, and, and you know, from from squadron level down to just a crew level, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, neat stories. We have some incredible um, mascots, actually. Ah, sorry, uh, good luck charms in the collection as well, including a um, a little doll uh, that belonged to um, a man named Jack Hoffains, who was uh, one of the pilots on the um, on the Dakota that disappeared on the repatriation flight um, from the Pacific and, oh. uh, after the end of World War Two. It was this single biggest loss of life in a single incident um, in the RNZAF um, and he had this, this doll that he took on, on every flight and you know usual story he didn't take it on that particular flight yeah. and, and the, they were yeah, never seen again wow. so we have that, that doll um, in fact it should be on it is on display actually um, just around the corner yeah. so yeah again another you know incredible story and yeah I, I I have to say I'm a little bit worried that Fanshawe's in the same cabinet as a bazooka. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wonder what he gets up to at night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's Finally you could talk. <laughs> yeah. Is there any chance that we might see that service record uh, put online? Has yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, we 
It is our ultimate goal to, you know, to digitise as much of our collection as, as possible. Um, we've started with our first World War uh, collection, so that has all been um, been digitised. But the collections team are working through the actual documentation side of it and and looking at how we, we actually make it available. But it should um, should be ready to um, to well, the first lot should be ready to be browsed next year. Uh, so we've now walked into the uh, the aircraft hall, which was number one hangar back in the day when it was an active uh, airfield here, and this is uh, where most most of the uh, aircraft are on display in terms of the the main collection, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So this this is an old uh, World War Two era hangar, um, and this was the original display hall uh, for the museum, and it and it still is our main display hall until uh, we take occupation of that new building, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so yeah this is where the majority of our aircraft are on display um, you'll notice today unfortunately some of the aircraft are missing uh, this does happen from time to time as we um, we host uh, events and functions uh, in this space including um, performances by the Christchurch Symphony Orchestra which right. um, is, is quite amazing it's one yeah. of another one of those post-quake quirks you know they've lost their performance venues so they look at other other spaces, and we're told that this has really good ac- acoustics. Is so, right? yeah, it's wow. quite incredible. So it's it's quite surreal sometimes to, to walk through here and hear, you know, a full orchestra um, playing. But there you go. So that, that's actually really interesting because a lot of the hangars uh, where they try and hold functions, the acoustics are so bad you can't even hear yeah. what people are saying. <laughs> yeah. And for something like this, a really old hangar. I know, <laughs> it, it's quite incredible. So, yeah. yeah, the biggest issue we have, of course, has been an old um, an old hangar. It's, it's not insulated. So, um, yeah. you know, uh, in summer it's like a, an oven in here, yeah. and then in winter it can be quite cold. But, um, but it, it's actually surprisingly uh, nice in here today. It Norm- is. Normally, when you come in, you feel the chill. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's really good today. As we're moving into spring, it um, yeah. definitely makes a difference. So, um, our most recent addition to the aircraft hall has been the incorporation of a large um, projector, um, which is playing uh, five historic newsreels. Um, so, these are um, uh, show different aspects of, of uh, the RNZAF. Um, and um, RNZF history, I should say. Yep. So that's just a way, really, of of bringing bringing the history to life. You know, people walk around these aircraft, and they're impressive in their own right. You know, they're stunning aircraft. But again, it's about bringing out the the stories, the human stories that really bring them to life. Yep. Um, and so people can see them, you know, projected on that large screen, see them flying, and and you know, and hopefully it, it really sort of has an impact for them so yeah. the the best one is probably we have a film about the early uh, top dressing trials that the oh, RNZAF right. um, took part in and the Avenger that they used is the very Avenger that we have on display right next to the screen right. so um, after each film we have a wee caption which um, sort of uh, makes a link to what they've yep. just seen to, to something in the museum Gives so, some context. yeah that's yeah. right so we we have uh, we screen a, a snippet of um, the Wings Over New Zealand um, film from 1941 which really showcases the Air Force um, at that time and um, there's a lot of great flying sequences uh, showing you know Oxfords so we we make the point that uh, we have an Oxford on display here in the museum you know go check it out so 
yeah, looking at ways of, of sort of making it more meaningful. We also try to um, incorporate as many interactive elements as we can um, because we recognise that, you know, this is a really effective learning tool for a lot of people and, you know, kids obviously love it, but it's not just kids. I mean, yeah. let's let's be honest, we all love having a, a you know, a tinker around with stuff. So um, we have a, um, a vampire jet cockpit, which people can climb inside. Um, we don't, we don't, as a general rule, allow people to climb inside our our aircraft just because if if we did um, you know they it, it's inevitable that they would get damaged yeah. um, you know if, if we didn't control that we have had open cockpit sessions where you know people can pay a little bit extra to to be able to climb inside um, but yeah these can be quite intensive to, to manage um, so by having you know um, because we do have a number of vampires in our collection, so yeah. that's why it's, it's okay to have a cockpit out. Yeah. You know, people can still have that experience and they can climb inside. Um, we also have a, um, a gun turret, which people can, um, can try out. Um, and we have a, um, a mock-up of a Emaki cockpit as well through um, in the, the c and Hall, which people okay. love. Cool. Yeah, so. And you've got the mosquito experience here too. We do, yeah. yeah. We have um, our uh, mosquito mission flight simulator, which is, is very, very popular. It's recently had a major upgrade, so it's got high-definition graphics, um, improved handling features. Cool. So you sit in a um, in an actual uh, mosquito cockpit with a, you know the real instrument panel and controls, um, and you have the option of... Uh, of flying two two different missions, both World War Two inspired. So uh, there's a the option to fly through the Norwegian fjords and, and attack uh, battleships, or um, you can recreate the Amien prison rage oh, and, right, um, yeah. and bust into into the jail and, and release some um, uh, uh, French resistance <laughs> workers. So yeah, that's really popular. And um, and again, you know, selling tickets to that is another way that we can support um, you know uh, what we do and and ensure that. Um, uh, admission is, is kept free. So this part here that we're walking down now is uh, is new to me because you're walking behind the aircraft and it used to be yes. out of bounds and that's that's yeah. great because you can see them from both sides now. Absolutely, yeah. And again, this is all part of trying to make our aircraft as accessible as possible and you know as, as safely as possible because yeah. you know the reason we have ropes around our aircraft isn't just because we're trying to, to stop people from touching them, um, although that, that is important yeah. because you know when it comes down to it. Um, you know, people look at aircraft and they think they're big, sturdy uh, things, but at the end of the day, they are museum artifacts and they are old and they can be fragile, surprisingly. Um, just as an example, um, the reason a lot of people, uh, sorry, museum people wear gloves a lot of the time is because we actually have a lot of oils and sweats in our hands, yeah. which, you, which aren't always visible. But when that comes into contact with metal, um, that can um, start the corrosion process. So it might seem crazy but actually there is a, a really solid reason behind it but aside from that I mean it's just a health and safety thing because yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think you might know where you're going but actually there's a you know even um, non-flying aircraft present a lot of hazards we've had a lot of you know people walking into propellers yeah. and, and things in the past yeah. so um, yeah so yeah we, we do try to, to make it as accessible as we possibly can so um, when our new building was built um, it meant that uh, the space that was the the old um, annex to the to the hangar um, uh, has been converted into a number of different uh, spaces. So um, we have a public programs room where our public programs team um, 
whole uh, host birthday parties for kids and um, and also our school holiday programs um, happen in there. So that's a space where kids can um, you know have fun and and engage in, in um, various activities. But it also meant um, that we um, that we were able to convert some of the space to a whole new um, exhibition area. Yep. So uh, this uh, exhibition that we're just um, walking into now is, is a captured exhibition. This is the one I mentioned earlier, uh, which focuses on the story of um, prisoners of war in Europe, yep. specifically Kiwi airmen um, shot down, um, captured, interrogated, imprisoned, and in the odd um, case, escaped as well. So the idea is that you follow uh, the journey of, um, of someone who, um, who's been shot down. So it starts with um, you know, flying on your mission um, and bailing out, and the story is told through a number of uh, different personal stories, uh, all drawn from our archive. Right. So these are these are people who we have their their letters, their diaries, their personal accounts, their memoirs, uh, their photos, and we can use aspects of that to tell different parts of the story. So, for example, we've got a personal story of bailing out. Um, Flight Sergeant Russell Douglas, um, and you know he writes bailing out. It's one of the best sensations I've ever experienced. <laughs> um, wow! <laughs> yeah, so we we you know we aim to accompany every um, every panel with a, a quote because again that just really gets across. You know, there's nothing better than hearing the words of of the guys themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what what's different about this exhibition is there aren't actually any. Um, real artefacts in here uh, from the collection. It's all um, either props or, you know, uh, mock-ups and, and panels. A um, couple of reasons for that. Um, mostly because this area, um, being, uh, you know, um, an annex to the, the aircraft hall, isn't climate controlled. Right. So for a lot of artefacts they need, for their preservation purposes, they need strictly controlled um, uh, you know, temperature and humidity, which we can't guarantee in here, yeah, so that's yeah. why we don't have that. But what we've done is, um, or what our talented exhibitions team did, is they mocked up a, um, a prisoner of war hut from a, a German prison camp, and um, inside there is a, um, a, a table, um, a communal table, pot belly stove, a couple of bunks, um, a simple bookcase uh, with a Red Cross box on top. There's even a bookshelf where people can press the, push the book forward to hear the secret radio. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, we've tried to we've tried to make it as interactive as possible. Um, uh, there's even a space where you can take your own mugshot. Um, you can put on a battle dress jacket and hang a number around your neck and and take your own mugshot, um, cool. which um, which people sort of like to do but again not losing sight of the we're not trying to trivialize it mm. we're just trying to actually tell the story in a in a way that people will respond to um and it's certainly not all you know fun and games um it's actually really interesting because i think in the 1950s and 60s uh <clears throat> one of the things that really inspired people were the stories of the pow camps because when when they were in the camps, when the prisoners were there, no one at home knew what was happening. No. And then the stories started coming out through books, and then they started making films, you know, The Great Escape and yep. uh, The yep. Wooden Horse and, all, and, and Starlight, whatever. And it was really glamorised. It, it was, it was. Yeah. Um, but they kind of inspired people and got them interested in those stories. And then when you actually meet people who were in the prison camps, it was nothing really like yeah. that. It was much harsher yeah. uh, than the, what the movies showed. Yeah. But, but the innovation and, and the... The amount of um, uh, cooperation and, and amazing skills that went into those uh, uh, 
the escape committees. Absolutely. Um, just just incredible and they are yeah. inspiring and yeah. and that kind of stuff really does appeal to the younger people yeah. and so something like this if it gets them interested in those stories and they might read further and actually read stories by guys who went through it yeah that's brilliant yeah. if they can do that absolutely so, yeah. it's been we can't you know consistently get really good feedback about this this space and you know just wandering through here myself you know sort of incognito i notice a lot of people really taking the time to read the stories yeah. which is really encouraging because yeah. you know majority of museum visitors um, don't take a lot of time to read so um, you have to be committed to you know to stand there and read something but but people do in here so um, yeah we know that we're we've done our job well yeah. <laughs> when, um, when we see that absolutely which is I'm just going to go over to the bunk and check how many slats are under there <laughs> because as we know probably too many oh yeah there's but they haven't taken these ones for the tunnel yet <laughs> no no and there are there are some some bed bugs on the, the bed oh, there large oversized bed bugs printed on the on the sheets yeah. so again just you know i mean kids love that they can climb on that and, yeah. you know and what have you there is uh, a secret um, escape route through here that um, the, the exhibition space is kind of divided by this um, uh, hidden doorway which is, is painted up to look like a bookcase right. and of course you push through it and it comes into into the um, escape area um, ah, right. which uh, usually when we walk through here it triggers off a dog barking so okay. <laughs> There, there it goes. <laughs> so this tells the story of um, of those who, who attempted to escape, those who successfully escaped, and those who who just had to you know wait for the the forced marches and liberation, um, as well as you know the eventual um, repatriation, liberation and repatriation. Brilliant, really cool. So we have um, we've got a note um, at the end, which obviously. Uh, says that this exhibition is about um, the experiences of those um, in German-occupied Europe. However, um, you know we, we do intend at some point to tell the story of those in the Far East as well because it's yeah. quite a different experience. Very different. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, they're after us. This is something uh, we thought was quite effective too. We um, pulled out a whole lot of um, prisoner of war identity cards from yep. our archives and scanned the identity photos and thumbprints and um, along with with each individual we um, tallied up the total number of days that they were in captivity wow so um, I think the longest the shortest is about 119 days the longest is a thousand and nine wow that's um, a long time to that be is a field, long time yeah most of the war so um, these are just the ones that, that we had in our own archive yeah so we have an upstairs uh, level. Most of our display areas are downstairs, um, but we do have a mezzanine area with um, some further uh, exhibits. So this gallery that we are um, just climbing up to now is the Caldwell Gallery. Yep. At the moment, uh, this is where we, we have a, um, a Sopwith Pup replica, which forms the centerpiece of, of this gallery. Yep. Um, but aside from that, sorry. Uh, we have a timeline um, of, of aircraft which goes all the way around one wall. So that's basically every single aircraft that's been in service with the RNZAF when it entered service and, and when it left service right, right up to the present. On the far wall we have a location map showing um, all, the, 
all the parts or all the areas in New Zealand where there's been any sort of RNZF base or station, yep. um, oh, including overseas, so um, Fiji and, and Singapore and things. Yep. And then on the other wall, uh, we have our, um, our photo wall. So um, this is a, a temporary uh, exhibition space where um, uh, we feature a series of photographs which changes on a regular basis, so every four months or so. Um, usually the photos are drawn from our own archive and themed um, around a you know, particular subject. Yep. So uh, previously we had um, uh, Air Force dogs, so looking at, at that you know, concept of, of mascots again and, and pets and the role of the dog in Air Force life, yep. um, which was a really fun one to do. At the moment um, we have a series of photos from um, the New Zealand Institute of uh, Professional Photography uh, veteran portrait project. Right. So that was a project to photograph um, all the surviving veterans of World War Two, um, which was um, begun, I think, in 2014. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah so we have a selection of the Air Force veterans, and um, you'll notice Derek Hubbard is oh, yes. um, who you spoke to earlier yeah. is up on the wall there. Yeah. Sadly, um, a few of, of these um, veterans have since passed away. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's always the way. Numbers are certainly declining. Yeah. Um, we also, uh, in this gallery, we also have our uh, new to our collection case. So this is where we um, feature um, particularly interesting items that have recently come into the collection. Yeah. Um, so this is where we have uh, John Clayton's um, RNZF Ensign that Brilliant. he flew at the South Pole. That was such a great thing that he did that rather than the New Zealand flag. Uh, you know, put up the Air Force Ensign. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, we also have a display case. Uh, every school holidays um, we have a, a different theme. So this theme um, is reflected in our school holiday program. Okay. It's also reflected in our um, children's uh, museum hunts that they do around the museum. Um, and we also have a, a display case. So last holidays the theme was um, spy games. So it's all about sort of spying and, and espionage and um, yeah. What have you? So, um, so that's uh, that's what this um, display case is all about at the moment. Do you find that in the holiday programs, the same children will come back each time? Like, are there, are there really keen kids that will come back over and over? We do have a lot of um, regular um, regulars in our school holiday program, so children who do come back, um, yeah, time and again, or every school holidays, just because they love it so much. Yeah. And but encouragingly, we're getting a lot of new. Um, new kids as well and once they've been once we're finding they're, they're begging their parents to let them come again cool. because it's just such a unique program that we run. So um, our programs like our visitor experience team work really hard to ensure the programs are, are relevant so which is challenging and you know when you're the focus of your museum is quite specific rather than a general museum where anything you know um, sort of it would be open to anything. Yeah. Um, but it, it helps that one of our visitor hosts um, actually has an Air Force background. He, he was in the Air Force and, and the Army, so yep. he has that experience to draw on. Um, and they just do a fantastic job. Um, so, um, yeah, the kids the kids have a blast, and they don't even realise that they're learning because <laughs> they're having so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's that's all kids that are having a, a positive association with the RNZIF, yeah. which is one of again one of our roles, you know, or one of those things that we you know, feel very strongly about is is ensuring that, that kids not only have, an, have a positive association with a museum, um, but also with 
with the RNZ with the Air Force because yep. of course the Air Force doesn't have a big presence in the south anymore. No. So um, for many people we are the only connection they might have with the RNZAF. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's actually... Uh, I mean, there's not even that much in the way of um, air shows or things. I mean, Wanaka and Amaka. Yeah. But, you know, you're lucky if you see that much from the Air Force at them these days. Well, absolutely. So. And, you know, they, they are expensive to go to as well. Yeah. So, you know, whereas, you know, museum admission is free. Anyone can, can bring their family in here. And, and we do see that. You know, we have a lot of local families coming in. Um, bring their kids and it's just fantastic it is and that's a really really uh, good point about this museum is it used to be a museum that you had to pay to get into uh, but now it's free and um, it's got to be one of the, the best museums in the country um, that's free I mean how many other free museums can you think of of this size with this amount of dedicated staff I can't think of anything. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, the Auckland Museum used to be free, now they charge. Yeah. You know, so they've gone the other way. Yeah. It, it's, it's something that our board felt were very passionate about. You know, they wanted to do it for a long time. Um, but it took a long time to get to that point, to yeah. be able to do it. Yeah. Um, because, you know, when you, you are taking in um, revenue in, in the form of, uh, you know, ticket sales... You need to replace that with something. Yeah. So, you know, they had to do a lot of work to ensure we could get to that point. But we're just, I mean, it's been absolutely brilliant for us because our visitor numbers have just quadrupled, um, you know, in that time. And, this, you know, we're now accessible to so many more people, um, people who otherwise just would not have come. You know, in order to pay an admission fee, you need to be really invested in, in the subject. And often people are hesitant when they're not really sure, you know, they're not sure what they're they're going to see or the experience they're going to have so they they generally you know don't don't bother unless they they have a real interest in it yeah. you know but now just so many more people have been exposed to to the air force story and um you know it's it's just been absolutely fantastic for us so last year we had uh, record visitor numbers um just over 116,000, which is 6% higher than any other year since the museum opened in 1987. Um, and on top of that were 60,000 corporate visitors as well coming to conferences and events. And again, that's people who otherwise possibly wouldn't have come to the museum. Um, so it's it's just brilliant. Well, that's really good. That, that's like that's like the entire population of a decent-sized city yeah. coming through. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, no, it is good. So, yeah, yeah no, definitely... Um, definitely very proud to be free and we, we want to ensure that it stays free so that's why we do have the odd thing um, that carries a charge you know our mosquito flight simulator yep. our museum uh, hunts for kids um, our holiday programs and birthday parties yep. um, however we we are trying to do as much for free as possible so our education programs for visiting school groups are now free yep. entirely free um, you know obviously you know kōhao donation is a appreciated yeah. um, but certainly not essential and um, and our tours behind the scenes tours are now free so they used right. to um, even when we went free admission um, we used to charge for the behind the scenes tours whereas now we've, yeah. we've done away with that as well so Brilliant. yeah so uh, we're now we've worked our way around to uh, which to me looks like a World War One exhibition yes that's right this is uh, Canterbury Stories um, so this is slightly unusual this exhibition this was a collaborative project that we engaged um, in, uh, together with a number of other Canterbury-based uh, institutions, so Canterbury Museum, um, Christchurch, Christchurch City Libraries, um, 
just uh, triggered a film um, <laughs> there. Uh, Naitahu, uh, South Canterbury Museum, and, and a number of others. So the aim of this was to um, to tell Canterbury's story of the First World War in time for the you know the centenary. Right. So um, yeah, we took a, a collaborative approach. At the time, we were the only space um, available. You know, to host the exhibition, which is why it's here. But um, it's it's good because it gives another perspective and um, for visitors. Um, you know, um, it's not. Yeah, it's it's recognition that we are a national museum, but also we're invested in our local community yes, as well, like absolutely. the Canterbury community. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Um, something I, I probably should have mentioned at the beginning was that um, I'm slightly unusual, probably for for a girl. I I am a self-confessed um, av geek. <laughs> <laughs> I am a wee, a wee bit of a spotter, although my colleagues give me a lot of grief over that. Um, <laughs> I've been absolutely mad keen on on aircraft for as long as I could remember, Dad. Um, you know, Dad took me along to air shows at, at Wanaka um, when you know when I was a, a kid, and yeah. we went along to every air show. And um, and then I I went on to, to join the ATC um, when I was uh, when I was thirteen. Yeah. Went all through ATC. Um, I also had an uncle in the Air Force. For, um, he was in the Air Force for twenty five years. Um, was a helicopter crewman. Um, so I've always had a bit of an affinity with the Air Force and. You know, and the subject matter, and I've I've always had a real a real passion for it, yeah. um, which certainly helps in the role that I'm doing now. Um, it helped in my previous role, certainly, you know, yes. in the archives. But yeah. now working in communications, it, it helps immeasurably because, you know, I kind of understand um, where a, a lot of our audience is coming from. Yeah. You know, yeah, especially true. the the enthusiasts who really know their stuff. Yeah. I can kind of relate to that. Um, but as as well, I can hopefully communicate um, some of our more unique aspects to those who don't have that background. Right, um, and right. that's yeah, sort of part of my challenge as a communications officer. So, I, I couldn't imagine it working really well um, if it was somebody who wasn't really interested. No, it would be a lot harder. Yeah. And, and I think possibly that's why you know the area of communications is something we haven't, to be honest, we haven't really nailed in the past um, I mean part of it is, is resourcing obviously because you know um, we're always we could always do with double the number of people that we we have I mean we do an awful lot with a very small number of people in the grand scheme of things for, for a museum the size that we are in a collection as, as large as we've got you know we have um, about 27 full-time staff to look after all of that so yeah it's it's hard but Certainly for, for communications, I think, you know, that background knowledge just is so important yeah. um, to, to really understand and appreciate the subject matter um, because you need, to, you need to be passionate about it in order to, to get, you know, to inspire others, I suppose, Absolutely. you know, um, and... Yeah, it's it's a huge part of the job, and, and you're doing a really good job with the the Facebook page and the um, you know all of the stuff that you do publicly. Uh, the enthusiasm comes through. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm pleased and, to hear that. Um, and you know we we all sort of bounce off that. So, yeah, um, yeah. I think I think actually the the Facebook page since you took it over uh, and started you know really pumping out the information it's it's given the museum a really good profile oh good it, it's so rewarding and and i just absolutely love it you know I'm, I'm constantly frustrated because i want to get more and more out but you know i'm i'm just one person and i've got just a you know a huge huge amount on my plate as, as we all do at the yeah. moment so it's just um yeah it's just having to to rein things back a little at times um but you know we really value um 
we we value our visitors both you know our physical visitors here on site and you know um and our online visitors our virtual visitors visitors, you know they're just so important to us everyone's important and we love that engagement so i definitely do encourage you know encourage anybody um everybody anybody to to engage with us don't be shy you know ask us questions um comment share stories we absolutely love that sort of thing and and i'd say too if you get the opportunity to get come to Christchurch, make sure you come and visit this place. You'll love it. Yeah, and you're, everyone's always welcome. And um, yeah, we'll we'll definitely make sure you have an enjoyable visit. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Michelle. It's been fantastic to have a walk around the museum with you and, and you. Uh, get a bit of an insight. No, thanks, Dave. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Cheers. Well, I'm sitting in the uh, safety and surface section of the museum restoration shop, and I'm here with Nathan Bosher, who's best known as Bach. Good afternoon or morning, whichever time you're listening to this. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be here. You know, you're more than welcome. It's always good to catch up with the old tradies too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, now, safety and surface trade, uh, not many people out there know what it's about, so uh, give, a, give a little bit of a rundown. Yeah, well, for us, you know, we, we're one trade where we cover probably, you know, up to... Um, you know, maybe even half a dozen or more trades in another Air Force. Yep. So we cover flying clothing, which is all your helmets, um, you know, flying overalls, life jackets, everything that the pilot wears. Yep. Uh, we cover the upholstery side of things, so we're doing all the uh, aircraft upholstery, seats, interior furnishings if they're made of fabric. Um, we also make you know canvas bags and stuff for the likes of uh, survival packs and things like that. So yeah, that's a fairly broad range when it comes to the fabric section. Uh, and then uh, the other side, you've got the um, parachutes, life rafts, and uh, all the survival equipment, including uh, flying helmets. And then the other side of the trade, of course, is the spray painting side, the, the aircraft finishing side of it. So that's the surface side of the safety and surface. Yep. And uh, that's all aircraft uh, exterior interior painting and paint stripping so down here at the museum of course i've got a bit more of a wider range of uh, painting requirements than most of the uh, rest of the air force does well that's right because you're covering all the different eras of uh, of aircraft and and service and and uh, so you must be working with all sorts of different types of equipment uh, compared to the average safety and surface worker who's just in the now yeah, yeah, the in the now would be nice because it would be like one paint system. But yeah, I'll work with anything, you know, right back to the, the 80s when we had nitrocellulose acrylics. Yep. So that's your acrylic lacquers, which is pretty much what they used during the war, or Second World War and earlier. So that paint system fits everything up until 19, early 1980s, actually. Right. So anything up to then that's the system we use yep. after that we're into our two-pack paints like the, the 479 capothanes 279 superthanes and everything that progressed from there right. uh, so pretty much anything that's come through the air force in the last 15 years i don't need to deal with uh, so everything before that yeah. yet and everything before that i have to deal with but you don't have to deal with that yet but it will come i don't have to deal with it yet yeah, yeah. we will get a c-131 <laughs> day they've, they've said so uh, i will have to deal with whatever paint system it's wearing at the time right. because the purpose of um, keeping to those systems is that the historical integrity of the, the systems the, yeah. the schemes and then you know you don't want to be putting an incompatible scheme over the top 
if you're doing it as a touch-up. Right. And generally, at the moment, you know, our, our policy is if it's come out of service and that's what it looks like, that's what we'll keep it as. Yep. So we're not going to do complete repaints. Uh, we'll only do touch-up repaints to you know, preserve or um, conserve the airframe as it is. So right. it won't be, I can't see me ever having to do major repaints on any of the stuff we will get from here on in. Okay. Uh, and that's stuff straight out of service. But if somebody came along and offered you a mosquito or something like that, you'd then have to go back to yeah. the old. Yeah, and we would work our way backwards through the applicable scheme. So yeah. in that case, it would be a, a lacquer. And thankfully, you know, most of the the big car firms, you know, um, Resine Santano, we use a lot because yeah. uh, they're a local firm. And they they're quite good to us. So their acrylic lacquers that they use on cars are almost identical to what you get. In the past, okay. so they work nicely for us, and they're compatible with the older schemes. Right. Uh, now, aside from the paint itself, um, the paint schemes is one of the things that you work on a lot with the research side, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the big bugbear for me, of course, is anything prior to 1970. We've pretty much lost a lot of the official drawings and information that's they've been just thrown out and burnt and. You know, we don't have that aircraft anymore, so the Air Force doesn't need them, so yep. we'll just biff them. Yep. So, 1970 onwards, we've pretty much got everything we need. Prior to that, it's uh, a bit of basic written material. They, they like to write things down and give you all the measurements of where to put them, and then no pictures at all. Yep. So, you would have to you know, extrapolate, and uh, that led to some issues of paint schemes not matching. Yep. So... I have to work my way backwards, and then of course the photographic archive is my gold mine when it comes to things like that. But yeah, in the past, um, to use the Sunderland as an example, yeah. we had 16 aircraft. Each was repainted a minimum of say four, three to four times in its lifespan. Yeah. So that's four variations for 16 aircraft. Yeah. So it, it was the small things like the wording on the. Um, surfacing stencils you know especially things like break this window for entry yep. for emergency rescue and things like that i found one aircraft had three different versions of, of just that simple sentence right. painted on it over its lifetime right. so that thing you know that that becomes the if we're going to repaint this thing we need to choose an error yeah and stick with that date period and uh, then go back to the photographic section find the photographs that have got dates on them or, or date them by um, various other means right. and then go with that scheme. So yeah, a simple scheme might be simple to look at to, to start with, but it just turns into this massive research. <laughs> and, and there'll be a nightmare with some of the larger fleets like the, the Harvards or the Devons or the Corsairs or something. Oh, There's yeah, actually. so much variation. Corsairs are reasonably well documented yeah. and photographed. Um, Harvards they actually get quite difficult and uh, when we did our gate guardian here 1050 I spent quite a bit of time just researching that era of, of scheme which was a 10 year period yep. um, and there was all sorts of little variations in there and then as they sort of got to the end of their life and they were looking well life of that scheme they were looking for another scheme to put on which turned into the, the grey and orange yeah but prior to that, they tried three other schemes. Oh, right. So there's all these little variations. So you know, our Harvard, just just one of our Harvards alone, had I think six schemes to choose from. Wow. For a historical representation of 1050 alone. Wow. 
Incredible. <laughs> yeah, it drives me nuts. <laughs> so what has been the, um, for you, the most interesting project that you've worked on at the museum over the years? Oh, that's a tough one, eh? Um, the Harvard was interesting, getting the right scheme for 1050. Yeah. Uh, the Oxford, yep. yeah, that was um, because we wanted to put it back to its original RAF scheme. So there was a bit of archaeological work on that. Yep. Um, and then you know, we took the um, airspeed drawings that we've got on file and then you know, delved through those to find out that there was umpteen variations from airspeed factory alone. Wow. So then that was you know, into the photographic archives and internet research and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. I think the Oxford scheme took me about 18 months of part-time on and off Wow. To, to actually come down to what we have on the aircraft today. Yeah. So, you know, when you're into a job like that, that gets fascinating because you're delving into late war paint schemes, all the RAF variations and everything else, and then our side of the coin as well. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can you um, tell us a little bit about the Airspeed Oxford? Yep, that was um, 14 years of fun. Yep. Um, right from the start, um, you know, our original Oxford was going to be a rebuild of a bunch of parts that we had, genuine New Zealand ones. Yes. Uh, but then the director at the time, which was um, Dave Proven, who was an uh, Air Force uh, officer at the time, um, they sourced one from the Canadians. Right. Um, turns out it was an XRAF one, um, and it had you know, no New Zealand provenance, but it was a complete aeroplane in reasonably good condition. So we took that on as a um, sort of a substitute which, you know, initially it would have been a complete rebuild with plans and buying in all the spruce and everything else to build a new aeroplane around the bits and pieces we had left over. Right. But this meant we could um, reverse the process that had happened to it of being turned into a console. By yeah. um, It was actually turned into a console by Airspeed, and we just reversed that. So that was one big part of the project, was to put things like the Bombay and the nose back onto it. Yeah. So... You know, these things that had been done to turn it into a civilian airliner had to be reversed. Right. And uh, PJ Smith, who was in charge of the project, uh, with uh, Brian Smith, one of our volunteers, no relation, right. um, they were the main people in the woodwork section, being an all-wood aircraft, they drove that project. So PJ drove the engineering of that project pretty much all the way through. Um, I got to see a lot of it as the painter, because everything that was taken off refurbished, cleaned up, would come and get a nice uh, new spray of cockpit green. Yes. Uh, went through lots of cockpit green, thanks to Rosine Sansano. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then all the wood would be um, checked out. The glues were the big problems. Um, that was why the Oxford sort of left service uh, was the urea-based glues were failing. Right. We had a couple in New Zealand Air Force where the wings fell off in flight. Oh, wow. So... Uh, that was when they retired them. Yep. So we made the one concession to modern um, processes by using epoxy glues when we put the aircraft back together. Okay. But other than that, all the engineering processes were original. Yep. So we use original spec materials if we didn't have the original part, um, down to the, all the um, British screws and bolts, which uh, they were a bit of a nightmare at times, yep. but you know they had to be done. And that aircraft, the way it is at the moment, is in as close to original state as you would get it straight from the factory. Brilliant. So, you know, 
we didn't have to reverse engineer much when it came to, to various things. The turret ring was a big one yep. um, that had to be fitted back into the aircraft. Bombay, of course, we, that was just the underside of the main uh, wing centre section. So uh, we're lucky enough to have a complete set of Oxford drawings okay. um, licensed to us by British Aerospace, who own all the airspeed stuff. Right. And uh, we could build that stuff as original with the original spec materials. So, you know, you're recreating kind of, but you, you're doing it properly. So, yeah. you know, is it a recreation or is it actually the right thing? You know, that's an argument that'll go on forever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the research side of doing the Oxford project was probably the first five years okay. of time was taken up because we didn't want to start anything until we had all our ducks in a row. Yeah. So, you know, you couldn't afford to make cock-ups along the way. Yeah. <laughs> reversing cock-ups can, can, well, you know, if you make a big enough one, you can actually destroy the historical integrity of the aircraft altogether. So, yeah, the research and the planning of how we were going to approach it. But saying that, you know, that was still happening right up until the very end. Okay. And, uh, you know, there was things going on at the last minute which were still being researched and then literally fitted to the aircraft the day of the rollout. Wow. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> we weren't going to cut any corners. Um, and there were a few things that hadn't been fitted on the day of the rollout, but no one would ever notice if we didn't tell them. So right. they are now on the aircraft. Have you had many veterans who actually flew in the in the Oxford come through? And yeah, we've had quite a few who've come in. And, um, I, I wouldn't say they get weepy-eyed. I think some of them had a bit of a love-hate relationship with the aircraft as a, as a whole. Yeah. Uh, but being a training aircraft, I think that's probably... Uh, and across the board thing with veterans. Yeah. Uh, we've had uh, guys from the UK come in, and, and I had a chap here, uh, and he'd worked on them back in the 50s, uh, before the RAF retired them. Right. So he was interesting to, to talk to, and, and he was um, very uh, uh, you know, gracious in his praise of what we'd achieved. Yep. Um, so you know, when you get guys coming in who've worked on them, they tell you that you've done a good job that's the best tick in the box you'll ever get you know absolutely i think um for those who had to fly them all the time they were actually a really popular aircraft i've talked to a few corsair pilots who before they got onto corsair squadrons were instructors on uh on the oxford and they all of them have said they love them they absolutely love them um in fact one of the one of the guys hated the corsair he, he didn't want to be a fighter pilot. He got pushed into it. Uh, he didn't want to leave the training school. He'd done it for three years, I think it was, uh, flying Oxfords, and he just wanted to do that for the rest of his life, um, which is really interesting. And, and yeah, he didn't want to be a Corsair pilot, not because of the combat or anything like that. He wasn't worried about that. It's just he didn't like flying the didn't, Corsair. Didn't like the Corsair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, we had a, um, a guide here. He was, ex, um, he was an ex-Mosquito pilot. He um, was an instructor in Canada. Uh, he's a wee fella, Tom Ramsey, and uh, he did his initial sort of instructor training to do um, multi-engine training. Yep. He did all that on Ansons, and then they posted him to Canada to go onto the scheme over there. Yep. And he turned up at an airfield in the middle of Canada with hundreds of uh, aircraft there, but, and not one of them was an Anson. <laughs> so he got a two-week flying course from another instructor on how to fly the Oxford, and you know, he said it was a, a really great aeroplane to fly. It right. had a few nasty habits, uh, and one of them, one of the students, nearly killed them both. 
by picking up on one of these nasty habits. Yeah. Uh, but he said, you know, this guy who trained him pointed that out prior to it. He said if the guy hadn't mentioned it, he would have been dead. So, yeah. you know, and he he quite liked him, and he en- ended up going on flying mosquitoes. So he went from one wooden aeroplane to another. So, uh, you know, they they must have had some uh, use as a trainer if you can go from that to flying something like the mosquito, which is you know three times as fast. Yeah. So the Oxford here is, uh, it's on a, on a long-term loan, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I have no idea what that means, really. Yeah. Um, museums speak with, with loans and, and the likes. Um, you know, before we could even get that aircraft as a project, uh, the Canadian Museum had to go through every museum in Canada and ask them if they wanted it. Right. Um, it didn't have Canadian provenance, so it's probably why we ended up, were able to get hold of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and and every museum means things like the you know, Ottawa Thimble Museum and places like that. Yeah, <laughs> if any one of them had said no, it, it, we want it here in Canada, it would have stayed in Canada. Wow. So, yeah, long-term loans. Um, they are you know, how museums support each other. Yeah. Um, and it often tidies up the paperwork side of things when there's issues with um, cultural um, heritage and things like that, where you. Know, you they can actually put a stop on things if it's got enough um, heritage behind it. Right. right. So, yeah, um, you know, the, the vagaries of those sorts of deals are well above my pay grade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, that was the last of the restoration projects that have happened here. Is there anything scheduled for the future to go into the workshops? Um, there, there will be eventually, but with the the main uh, aircraft hall not available to us yet we're, right. we're concentrating our time on running a maintenance program on the aircraft that we currently have uh, on main display or in the reserve collection yep. so by the time we get the conference hall back and turn it into our main museum like it's you know destined to be yeah um we want all the aircraft that are going to go in there up to a maintenance standard where we won't have to move them out again you know in the short term, right, by short term I mean ten years. Yeah, you know. that makes good sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it just, you know, they will not just sit there by themselves in a hangar and not rot away. Yeah. You've always got to look after them. Yeah. You know, metals will corrode, paint will fade. You know, so something's got to be done. Even though you might not have touched them for fifteen years, they've yeah. been sitting in a hangar untouched. You've still got those maintenance issues. So. Yes. You know, seals will break down and yeah. aircraft will start to leak, yeah. um, especially if it's British. <laughs> so we've got all those issues that we need to deal with with the aircraft that are currently on display. Yeah. And then you know, that could be 15 years' time by the time we finally finish that whole maintenance program. Right. We could be moving back into restorations. But right. we don't have anything in our gun sites at the moment um, because it's just... It will disturb our planning for the future at the moment. So yes. When it comes, when it happens, we'll be happy to do it because cool. um, you know it's it's easier to get volunteers to come and do a restoration than it is to um, do a maintenance project. Yeah. I think, yeah. um, although the engineering's the same, the, it's nicer to see a big engineering you know restoration project that actually comes to an end, even if it takes fourteen years like the Oxford did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and have you got a, a a favorite artifact in the museum? One of my favourites is the um, the float off the Chatham's Sunderland. Oh right! And it's you know it's it's a massive item. They we did an exhibition a while back, which was our favourite items, and 
I got to pick one and that was my pick so I was like Jesus barely fits through the door of the gallery you know? <laughs> so that was one of my favorites and, and simply because I had this sort of love affair as a kid with the Motat Sunderland and my father worked with an old guy who used to be a navigator on them those and, and Catalinas so yeah I, I talked to him a lot as a kid with this fascination for the Air Force and yeah. you know once you edited out the, um, the string of uh, filthy language that he was prone to uh, you could sort of <laughs> get into the history of the, the squadrons and the Sunderlands and the flying boats so that one fascinated me so that big item um, it's just it's got lovely lines you know but it's an interesting piece of kit it's got a lovely piece of history behind it yeah. so that was my my choice it just happens to be about 12 foot long right oh, fantastic so before you uh, came to the museum you were in the real air force as safety and surface and d did you actually work on any of the aircraft for real that are here now Skyhawks or anything like that? Um, yeah, I, I worked on Skyhawks. I was at Woodburn for 13 years, so we did the depot level maintenance yep. Skyhawk painting. So both aircraft that we've got here, um, I painted those at some stage right. uh, in a different scheme. Yep. Um, and the Andover, I worked on those when I was in Auckland on and off. Uh, we did you know paint touch-ups and things like that. Uh, let's see, what else? I actually did quite a few of the museum aircraft before the museum opened. We we helped out with those oh, as well. Right. So, yep. Yeah, um, Eric Hoyes, I worked on Squadron for a while, so a lot of the contemporary stuff from 1980 onwards, uh, yeah, I had something to do with quite a few of them right. on the way through, except for the Blunties. So okay. Thankfully avoided those. They're a nightmare. I know a few people who would uh, disagree with that. but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, I was talking to an ex-RAF painter uh, just yesterday, and uh, he said, no, paint stripping them was a nightmare so uh, you know painting them's the easy part yeah. the preparation was a nightmare on oh, Blundy right. so. yeah. Yeah. well just stripping's always a horrible job isn't it yeah yeah you know, your wife or girlfriend starts to hate you after a while because <laughs> you actually you, know, you just think a paint stripper for a week yeah and you, your food tastes like paint stripper yeah. your farting paint stripper yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Those were not good days, eh, Dave? I, I really think that the uh, the rest of the Air Force didn't appreciate how much we went through when we had to do that kind of thing. No, no, they don't have any grass whatsoever, most of them, yeah. Except yeah. for the poor buggers we used to rope in at Woodburn and build up the teams with, but yeah. yeah. They used to, most of them would try and avoid it, they'd pull sickies or go on leave the next time the paint strip was coming up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, working in a museum like this, you're obviously passionate about the Air Force history. Um, how do you, what are your thoughts on? the importance of preserving our, our Air Force's history. Yeah, as you say, it's the passion. Yeah, and I I'm firmly believe that we need to cover everything we've got. You know, and the beauty of us as a museum is that we're not just a collection of aeroplanes because we also focus on the human side behind it. Yeah. The planes didn't fly without pilots, yeah. but they also didn't fly without the ground crew. Yeah. And that's right down to the, the cooks and chefs, you know, the whole big machine of people. That's where all the interesting stories are. Absolutely. You know, you can look through an aircraft logbook and go, oh, it went here, it went there, it did this, it did that. But the people behind that, and when you start delving into the stories behind that, that's where the fascination is. Absolutely. And then, of course, we are a memorial as well. So, you know, we've lost a few friends over the years in the service, and then, the, you know, you, you start to get a grasp of, what happened before then with yeah. wars and things like that where people were losing friends on a daily basis yeah, um, yeah you do get very passionate about protecting our history as well yeah, yeah. It's, it's the history and it's the culture I mean we're protecting yeah. a culture here aren't we it's oh yeah the culture is, um, is very interesting because you know, we're made up our staff is made up of 
lot of civilians yeah. these days. Um, we're not all Air Force or, or ex-Air Force. So they come in and, you know, we tell them right at the start, you know, you're going to have to get your head around the culture. Yeah. The culture will stay alive no matter what. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to get your head around that. You've got to start understanding Air Force people and the way they think. Yeah. And that will make your life or job here a lot easier in the long run if you have to deal with any of the people still in the service. That's right. Because, I mean, the Air Force has its own language. Uh, you know, it, it has it has its own um, way of writing things. It, it really yeah. is a, 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 a cultural diversity that's different from being a civilian. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's something that I don't think many people realise. And every service, like the Navy has its own culture, the Army has its own culture. I guess the police probably have their own culture. Um, and we're a, we're a dying culture because every day in the newspapers, the... Um, the wartime and, and 1950s and 60s guys are disappearing and yeah. you know, we're becoming yeah. an endangered species really yeah yeah but you know that culture just it runs all the way back it does and you know, my wife often comments on it that us Air Force people are just strange you know you've got a dark perverse sense of humour mostly yeah. so you know that carries through and she, she notices it um, you know with old mates who have been out of the service for 15, 20 years, you can meet up with them and she says, you guys are weird. It's like you're just carrying on the conversation that you finished 20 years ago. Exactly. And uh, and oftentimes she's sitting on the outside going, what the hell are they actually talking about because of all this, you know, the Air Force language. But she loves the culture. She she thinks that's one of the special things about, you know, us as a whole and that that culture runs all the way back and it goes way back, you know, past the First uh, Second World War. Um, and it's just sort of stayed the same all the way through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of interviews with veterans of the Second World War, and I've met people who joined up before the war even, and um, instantly there's a rapport because we know what... I mean, we've, used, we've probably stayed in the same barracks and worked in the same workshops and probably used the same tools in a lot of a lot of respects, and, um, yeah, the, there is that same language thing. There's, it, it really is something that you just instantly click and you you know what they're talking about, because yeah. even if they were 50 years before you. Yeah, that, that's one of the beauties of working here in the workshops. You know, you've got old guys who've been around since the 50s. Yeah. Um, some of them were earlier. Um, unfortunately, you know, they're dying off now. But, you know, we're, I came here um, and started working straight with guys who were on the Atlantic convoys. Wow. And, you know, those guys, their goldmine of information was all tied up in their head and the, the engineering knowledge and the, the service knowledge. But as a young fella, well, yeah, I, was, no, I was in the 40s, just pushing 40 then, yeah? yeah. And uh, I could talk to them as equals. Yes. They might be 40 years older than me and have come through you know, a world war like that, but you could instantly just talk to them on the same level yeah. and they didn't shut you out or assume that you knew nothing. They would impart that knowledge happily. All right. And... Uh, yeah, we start to do that as we get older yeah. to the younger fellows who come through. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Who, who have been the most um, interesting or influential people that you've met through the museum? Um, it, it was the older guys. Um, we had a, a chap here who was on the the Atlantic convoys. He was ex Fleet Air Arm. Um, yep. he, he was a British chap. Um, lovely gentleman. Um, gold mine of you know, engineering knowledge right back to you know, he worked on swordfish. And, yeah. hurricanes things like that you know so his knowledge base was just 
unfathomable to us younger guys. But, yes. Um, and he was just such a gentleman about it and wouldn't hesitate to talk about it. And, uh, yeah, old Doug, he was just, you know, people like that. Um, we had a couple of them yeah. um, of that era, and they were both the same. They, they just passed on their knowledge and were happy to talk to you. And, you know, uh, those, are, I think, are the most influential ones. Yeah. And what are your, um, what's your current project or projects that you're working on? Um, well, we're, we're currently working on the big move from Whedon's. Yep. Um, so that's sort of tied up our engineering time. Um, so I don't have any major projects painting-wise on the go. Um, we do have our maintenance aircraft that come through. So I think the next one's going to be the Sea Sprite maybe or something like that. So right. there'll be touch-ups and things that need on that. Um, but I also do a lot of... Um, work for the front of house team so like the kids holiday programs they yeah. they currently need um new table covers for their their uh, workspace yeah. so i'm going to make some table covers more manageable table covers for them um i made a whole set of little kids um, mock life jackets for them earlier this year yeah. so when the kids have their holiday programs or their uh, birthday programs you know, we can fit the kids out in something that actually fits them instead of an adult-sized life jacket, and the kids think it's wonderful. So, you know, I get such a variety of work here. And then, you know, weekly there'll be another paint scheme inquiry. Right. Some of those are easy. You just photocopy the old pages and send them off, or some of them are a bit more in-depth. So, uh, and they they can be fun. But, uh, yeah, my, my days are um, guesswork. What am I, what's going to happen today? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, even when I was in the Air Force and running the fabric bay, it was a bit like that then because yeah. you get so much variety when you're working in the fabric section. Um, I, I'd highly recommend people to join up as SNS because it was yeah. it was a varied job, and yeah. you do six months in one bay, and then suddenly you're doing a completely different job. Whereas, you know, avionics might be just soldering for the rest of their lives or, <laughs> or, or you know, aircraft mechanic might be unscrewing and screwing things on, I don't know, but we, we had totally different jobs. Yeah, the variety is what sort of kept me interested in yeah. the trade. I mean, it's what's kept me here as well. Yeah. You know, I've been a civvy here for 13 years now. Right. So, you know, it's that variety. No two days are the same. You never get bored. Yeah. So, yeah, love it. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Buff. You're welcome. Awesome. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.